Welcome to The Read Along, a mini book club for your ears, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. I'm your host, Scott. I'm your other host, Anita. And join us on a journey through a good book, one, one chapter, chapter at, at a time. This episode of The Read Along is brought to you by Yeg Podfest, presented by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Alberta Podcast Network and LitFest, Canada's nonfiction festival. Running October 1st through 3rd, Yeg Podfest will be held all online this year so anyone can tune in and experience it. Events include masterclasses with professional podcasters, panel discussions, feature interviews, and much more. Some of APN's member shows will be there too, so join us for the virtual party from October 1st through 3rd. To check out the full lineup and get tickets, head to yegpodfest.ca that's yegpodfest.ca. It's all about school times here at the Read Along. <laughs> here in the Read Along house, it is the first official, full, and complete day of school. I mean, we're talking about half day kindergarten, so it's a little misleading, perhaps, <laughs> to uh, describe it as full school day. But uh, because. We are work-from-home parents who are both working in order to pay for said home. <laughs> we don't have the capacity to look after uh, a child for half a day. So uh, it's off to daycare, and today is the first day where it's from school to daycare to home later, and uh, hopefully it all goes smoothly. Fingers crossed. We'll, we'll keep you posted about the uh, developments in the life of our young children, the <laughs> eldest of which is, uh, is off to school for the first time this year. I only cried a little bit. So that's pretty good. Yeah. I was hoping not to cry at all. And yet, here we are. Just a little bit. Your, your little baby boy is growing up. I know. Yeah. I'm okay. Has a shockingly small class. Delightfully shockingly small. Yeah, like 14 kids in Which is amazing. Class. Unprecedented. It's great. Unheard of in, uh, in Alberta for there to be small class sizes. Right. So, uh, yeah, hopefully the teacher will be able to take full advantage of that. I hope so, too. Yeah, and the only kindergartner in his daycare, so uh, all the other kids show up later, and he has his run of the place for like two hours. <laughs> I hope that turns out well for him. Yeah, we'll we'll see how that goes. The little kindergartner in charge. I but, love it. Uh, well, and I mean, it's still early days. Other other kids might yet sign up. That's true. As uh, as the weeks go here, so, uh, but yeah, that's neither here nor there. That's just a little update about what's going on with us personally, because things are happening. Life carries on. And. I mean, some of you, fair listeners, might be vaguely interested in us, the hosts of the podcast. So uh, there you go. If you're invested, if you have a parasocial relationship with us, <laughs> if you let us into your home once via a week. your ears. Yes, once a week, via your ears, uh, and are curious about what's going on in our lives, there you go. Our eldest is, is off to school this week, and, and we are coping with that. So we're not the only people coping. The protagonists of our novel are also coping with difficulties, but very different difficulties. <laughs> ah! So a uh, brief recap of chapter 23, uh, in which Nick and Johnny make it to a suspiciously not overrun by monsters dig site, make their way to the location of an ancient shrine, dig themselves away in, and get lost in a maze. Whee! That pretty adequately recaps... Uh, our previous chapter is we get into chapter 24 of Beneath the Rising by Premi Mohammed.
I titled my notes Raiders of the Lost Tomb? That one's probably not going to be the title of this episode. And it's okay if it's not. It's not great. Weaker than last week's. But it's tomb with a question mark because I'm not sure if it's a tomb or a shrine or both. I mean, it's objectively both. It is definitely a tomb. Because I think they refer to it both ways. Yeah. So guided by the power of Compass Hand. I called her Johnny the Compass, which I then decided was an excellent mob name. There you go. (laughs) Uh, They arrive in the chamber that uh, they've been looking for. Johnny is exhausted. Uh, the assorted spells she's running all at once are obviously taking a toll on her. Oh, yeah. She's she's barely got anything left to give. This guiding compass spell has uh, drained her quite a bit, and Nick practically has to prop her up <laughs> as they uh, make their way yeah, into he, the tomb chamber. He's, he's kind of dragging her along at this point and like pushes her up against the wall slash door that she needs to open up. <laughs> yeah. Nick also notes early on that whatever appeared to be following them in the maze seems to retreat at this juncture. It doesn't appear to be following them anymore. It's around that time that the walls kind of shudder. And Nick's like, oh, we've been discovered. And Johnny's like, yep, seems like that's the case. So we better hurry up and find what we're looking for. (laughs) So Johnny takes a quick look around the room that they're in and locates a locking mechanism. And she's like, "Mm, this is going to need some blood. Well, okay. Actually, there are a bunch of locks. Yeah. And she opens some of them by whispering words at them. She opens uh, some others by, like, uh, tracing on them, I think. Like, touching them in the right way. Yeah, there's... uh, Basically, all the locks have different keys. Yeah, and she's working her way around, and she encounters one that needs some blood. And honestly, I think it's okay that she asks Nick for this, because she's, like... Fading fast. Yeah, he. The last thing you should do to someone who's fading fast is cut them. He doesn't even question it. He just like picks at a scab from one of his uh, accumulated wounds and uh, just like splashes some blood at her. Uh, Something is definitely approaching down the hallway though, because as Johnny like cracks open the door they need to go through, some light pours through and it illuminates just like a wall of teeth and eyes making its way down the hallway. Well, I got the impression that the door itself lit up. It could be because Nick talks about a pink light. Uh, but the light's not coming through the door. The light is coming from the door. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Nick grabs the shovel and buys them some time as the locks very painfully slowly open. <laughs> he kills a few monsters and is actually caught off guard at how squishy and easy to kill they are. He calls them He calls them jelly mofos. Yeah. And I don't know why that cracked me up, but it did. Now, he's fully focused on fending off faces in the fracas. And as he presses the attack, Johnny starts yelling at him, you need to come this way, the door's open, follow me. That distracts him long enough that he gets bit. And one of these jelly monsters actually inflicts a a pretty nasty wound on him. Yeah, like bites into him. Yeah, so they might be squishy, but they, they can bite. Squishy with teeth. Yeah. Johnny grabs at him and they fall through the opened door. And Nick has a little blackout. Okay, before before we get through the door, I have, I have a question for you. Sure. The darkness that was following them around mm-hmm. and the squishy jelly mofos mm-hmm. that came out of it, same thing? I don't... Two different things. I get the impression they're two different things. Because I, I agree with you there. I think they're two different things. Which leads to another question I have. Was the darkness already there as, like, protection? Like a sentry to try and stop anybody from getting to the door. If that was the case, it did a pretty crap job because they got to the door. Right? It was following them. 
I get the impression it was more something that was watching them. And it was watching them up until they got to the door, and then it called in the wall of monsters. Oh, that like, makes sense. I figured the, the darkness might have been a deterrent, right? Because if you get into the tomb, darkness that follows you back would be super scary, and maybe it was there to scare people off. It's hard to say, honestly, uh, because there's no real explanation for much of what's going on here. But I certainly got the impression through context that whatever was following them was watching them and is a separate and distinct thing from the wall of blobbies that attacks. Yeah. They might be in cahoots. They could be cahooting. We don't know. So hard to say. Nick comes to in a chamber full of white sand. Uh, He awakens to Johnny crying and trying to bind up his wound. She is emotionally and physically exhausted at this juncture. She's had a long day. He confirms they have made it to the king's chamber, and it appears that the wall of blobby monsters outside cannot follow them in. Nick does his usual shtick, trying to cheer up Johnny with a little bit of levity, and asks her, when we save the world, as we inevitably will, Yeah. uh, where do you plan to go? She actually says she'd like to go to Ireland, specifically to see some rocks, and Nick thinks that's boring. <laughs> so she kind of throws it back and I'm like, well, fine then, Mr. Mister. I'm too good for the rocks of Ireland. Where would you like to go? And Nick says in order that he would like to meet hobbits, he'd like to meet penguins, and he'd like to go to a radioactive wasteland. How is that any better than looking at <laughs> Irish rocks? Uh, specifically, he wants to go to New Zealand, Antarctica, and the exclusion zone. Yes. Around Chernobyl. Tangent. Mm-hmm. When he said the exclusion zone, I pictured the boundary line in Korea that's turned itself, accidentally turned itself into like a nature preserve. What's that one called? No, that's the, that's the demilitarized zone. The demilitarized that's zone? That's the DMZ, yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. I had it confused. Why would he want to go to Chernobyl? The, the Chernobyl exclusion zone, because it's like a ghost town. It's a radioactive ghost town. Why would you want to go somewhere radioactive? Disaster tourism. That's legitimately a thing. There are people, they go to Fukushima, um, they go to the exclusion zone. Um, you You can get there. You can do the tourism thing. And you can say, hey, I've been in the radioactive waste. I've seen the radioactive boars. It's a little bonkers. I get it. It's the reason people slow down around car accidents and train wrecks and stuff, because you you marvel at the destruction. Nick is also a teen, though. And a teen boy is going to be like radioactive wasteland around a... a melted down nuclear. nuclear power plant is going to be is cool. I want to I want to go and touch the soil. Like that's I get it. No, I don't totally touch the get soil. it. I but I totally get it. Like when I was a teenage boy, I would have been like if you give me anywhere in the world to go to and you tell me that there's a radioactive wasteland, I'm going to go to the radioactive wasteland. I get it. I kind of get it. It's just not for me. I get that other people do it. No thanks. Uh Nick might also be like feeling bold at this point too though. <laughs> Yeah, like, he's also had a long day. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, with all of the travel they've done and all the death-defying they've done so far, I can see why, like, he would be feeling a little invincible in this moment. And he'd be like, okay, the nerd in me wants to go and see the hobbits in New Zealand. But then after that, I'm going to go to Antarctica, the coldest place on Earth, because why not? I want to see a penguin. Because penguin. And then I'm going to go see radioactive boars in the exclusion zone, because it's cool. And I can do anything. I'm invincible. Oh, yeah. And at that age, you you do kind of feel invincible. Uh, another side tangent. I saw a video recently of a couple documenting their Antarctic cruise. Mm-hmm. And they did, because they crazy, a polar plunge. As you do in freezing water. Yeah, but in Antarctica? Sure, why not? Like the coldest place ever. 
So, yeah, they went out there in their swimsuits and were like, yes, let's jump into the water. And I was like, you fools. You crazy fools. I've I've done the, a cold pool plunge before. It's bracing. I've I've also done hot and cold pool plunges. And yes, bracing. I don't know if I'd want to do it out next to an iceberg. My point is, I think Nick would do it. Well, whatever Nick would do on his tour, he, right now in this moment, glances around what is a fairly opulent tomb uh, and quickly notices some human remains and presumes that it must be the last of what's left of the sorceress. Yes, I assumed that as well, based um, on the flowers. Yeah, and it, it kind of reminds him, actually, that there is more than one type of love, and it's not merely romantic. That that loyalty is an expression of love as of well. Of course. Yeah. I tell lots of my friends that I love them. I don't wish to start romantic relationships with all of them. But, I mean, Nick's been kind of caught up in his romantic feelings for Johnny. Well, his romantic feelings or lack thereof. Yeah. Right? It, his, it's been something he's been wrestling with. Yeah, his so. feelings in general toward Johnny. And yeah, this is about the age where you you start to really need to sort those kinds of things out. Yeah. Johnny quickly scopes a compartment in the sarcophagus and speaks some of the old language to it and uh, manages to pop it open, uh, revealing a clay sphere. It's a little anticlimactic, actually. For a little. What, for what Nick was expecting. Yeah. I was expecting something very Indiana Jones. It's a little Indiana Jones. Yeah, but a little. Indiana Jones had like lights and music and stuff, and this is just... A little clay ball. Johnny explains that clay balls were actually commonly used in the in the time period that the king was buried to show that something important was within and had not been tampered with. Yes. Because there was an unbroken, unblemished clay ball around it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and she cracks it open like an egg, and sure enough, there is a tablet within, upon which is written the word of power she has been seeking. We don't know what it is. She didn't say it. Yeah. I don't know. Does that waste the word of power? No. To just read it aloud like In that? theory, one could use it whenever, but I mean... Probably start bleeding from the nose or spit out a tooth or something every Possibly. time you use it. Yeah. Who knows? Nick's like, cool, we have the word of power. Let's go find the gate and shut it off. And she's like, not so fast. You thought we were done all these fetch quests, but there's still one more fetch quest. To <sighs> she says she needs a Huashinoth. And Nick is like, cool, whatever that is, is it also here? And she's like, mm, no, but it couldn't be far. And he's like, all right, well, how do we get out? And she's like, let's take a look around. Maybe we'll find the thing, and also maybe we'll find the exit. Otherwise, we're kind of boned. They do search around for a little bit, and Nick finds a tiny staircase. Super duper narrow. Leading up to the dome way up high in the tomb. And Johnny is like, this is a crazy idea. We should not take the staircase. And Nick is like, but it must lead somewhere. <laughs> Otherwise, it would not be here. Well, and Nick's <laughs> other counterpoint is uh, scary, toothy jelly monsters out the indoor, so staircase is safer. Well, I mean, they might not even be able to go back out the indoor. Exactly. Because I, I seem to recall that Johnny hinted that it had sealed up behind them, basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they go up because there's no other option. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the top, they do discover a door and then promptly drop the flashlight back down into the tomb. Uh, Nick will later joke that they are hardly grave robbing because they left something behind. Yeah. They're they're perhaps grave trading. <laughs> Grave, grave gifting? Yeah. He says grave gifting, but they did take something out. Yeah. So leaving something behind seems more like a grave trading. Agreed. That sounds more like grave trading. Uh, Nick offers to go back down and get it, but Johnny's like, never mind, pulls out her cell and turns on that light. And then says, oh, ten wish called. She promptly opens the lock on the secret door up at the top at the dome. And uh, the two head into a little conduit, which leads to a trap door, which they, they then have to pry open with their shovels. 
Uh, that does, however, lead right outside. It was the secret entrance to the tomb. This is something that bothers me about this kind of, I don't know what to call it, a trope, maybe? Happens in Indiana Jones, too. They escape out, like, into the open air through, like, a wall somewhere. And I'm like, really? No one noticed the door in the side of the Sphinx over here? It's, it's... You had to go the long way through the labyrinth and dig deep and et cetera, et cetera? When there was a door that led right to the thing. Right? Um, the door that leads right where you need to go. It's a very D&D dungeon, too. Here's the thing. When you're looking at, like, ancient pyramids and stuff, there are secret entrances and exits like that so that builders could get around more quickly. And they were, generally speaking, sealed up. And that appears to have been the case here because Johnny had to open a secret door in the dome that was locked from that side to lead to a conduit to lead to a secret trap door that led outside. Even if someone had found the secret trap door, they would have been funneled down the conduit to a door that could only be opened from inside the tomb, which was likely designed to prevent grave robbing. Okay, I will give them a leave on this one because if they are magic one-way doors, and they are, then then yes, then your system is sound. If you if it's a, if it's a one-way valve, and that seems right? to be the case, yes. Then okay. However, if I were this sorceress coming to my king's tomb to lay the last flowers and die, I would want to use the secret easy door, not the complex labyrinthine scary monster door. Okay, well, I, I seem to recall them mentioning that she just like sealed herself into the tomb and lived out the last of her days there. Yeah. One would assume she did that nearer to the end of her days. No, I'm under the impression that she did that around the time of the, the smiting of the city. That's one of the reasons that she and her acolyte survived because they were all sealed oh. up in the tomb. Which leads me to another problem I had with this story, which you might want to discuss closer to the end of the chapter. Johnny pops her head out first and then asks for her shovel. Uh, and Nick follows her out promptly. And sure enough, there be monsters. There's monsters out there. Of course there be monsters. Uh, a brief melee ensues, but uh, Nick and Johnny, pretty used to fighting these, these dog monsters at this point, fend them off with relative ease. But they do note the sun is starting to get low and time is running out. Mm -hmm. So Well, they've been wandering around in a maze for however many hours, right? It's true. So Johnny takes a minute as they get to high ground and uh, explains that the last thing they're looking for, the Hua Shinoth, is basically an amplifier. And it will amplify the word of power so it can be used to lock the gate. Unfortunately, it wasn't in the tomb, but as she had previously stated, it can't be too far because it was previously used to seal the gate the last time around. Yeah. So it, it must still be around somewhere. They just need to find it. She does lament a little bit, like, if we couldn't find the amplifier, I guess, like, if we had, like, a sizable sacrifice, it might do the trick, too. But I don't have a bull lying around to, like, take all the life force out of all at once. Don't know if that's a little exposition that's going to come in useful later on. I hope so, not. Just pointing it out right now. They do get to the high ground, and Johnny uses a different spell to try to locate the amplifier, but admits it might not be that accurate because... It's based off of non-human proportions. <laughs> I like, she said it's some weird measurement. It, it was based on the wingspan of the creature. That, that made the spell. That made it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's A, very clever. B, uh, pretty cool. Yeah. Ultimately, she decides on a spot. They spend about an hour digging, and it is a complete waste of time. They do not find what they're looking for. No. Johnny breaks down again. Nick nearly breaks too, and it's... Because all at once he starts to feel the weight of all this pressing on him. And he's kind of angry that it's up to them to save a world they've barely seen. And I'm going to put a pin in that. And we're going to come back to it at the end. Okay, pin number two. He manages to pull himself back together. He gets Johnny back on track as well. And she's like, all right, 
let's try over at this spot. And they, they pick out a new spot to go and, and dig in. They dig a bit more. At first, they only really turn up a mask. And Nick realizes at this juncture, I'm not even certain what I'm looking for. What does the thing look like? And Johnny is like, you'll, you'll know it when you see it. <laughs> yeah. She says, fundamentally, it should be a circle. Some sort of weird circle looking thing. Uh, it is starting to get dark. It is starting to cool down though Nick is not too worried because it's been so blazing hot earlier in the day, failing to realize that deserts can get very cold at night. Very cold. Johnny, however, does light a fire, and Nick takes a minute to toss some of the frankincense on it, and that actually lightens the mood considerably. The nice smell yeah. fills the air. The fire gives them some light to dig by, and, and they both kind of cheer up a little bit and engage in a little bit of witty banter. <laughs> right up until the ground shudders, like like an explosion nearby occurred. Yeah, Nick Nick clunks into something with his shovel. The ground trembles away underneath him. And he's like, did you did you feel that? And when he looks up, she's looking into the sky. Yeah, and she's like, oh no. And she says a bad word. And that is the end of chapter 24. Yeah, and she looks up and I'm like, oh, oh dear. Death from above. Here we go. Oh no. Yeah, we'll have to find out what she is looking at as uh, we segue into chapter 25. That is not for us to know right now. Uh, whose pin do we want to deal with first? Uh, let's do yours first because you pinned first yeah my pin came first in the story so let's deal with my pin I would have liked a little more of the story about the sorceress because I felt that this skeleton lying there with these dead flowers as like a final act of loyalty to her king should have meant something more to me than it did I mean, we, we got a little bit of the story last chapter. A little bit, but I would have liked a little bit more. I would have liked to have been made to feel that it was important and worth giving to us. So that when we get to this point where, like, clearly this woman entombed herself alive with her king as an act of love. So that her skeleton is still there and the flowers are still there. And it's it's supposed to be a very meaningful thing. But because I don't have enough context for it... I was expecting to feel some emotion over that, and I didn't. Not really. I've been filling in the blanks myself. That's fair. I would posit then that maybe she should have come up earlier in the story. Yeah, that would have been should have been nice. learning more about her as uh, as our protagonists went through the quest. Even even if Johnny was translating the story as they went through the tunnels. I mean... Right? Because remember the story was written on the walls? She kind of was. Like, that. that was part of last chapter as she discussed this. Yeah, but we only got, like little bits and pieces. Yeah. I think it would have been incredibly interesting for Johnny to like narrate this whole story as they go through. And maybe that would have been part of the puzzle, right? Putting the rooms in order by the bits of story. And once you get the story in order, you know which way to go and it leads you to the King's tomb. And then we get this nice secondary story that has this, you know, tragic, but meaningful end. And potential thematic links to what's going on with Johnny and Nick. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm just saying. Well, it it's kind of, it's it's hard to say what the payoff is for this at this juncture because we're true. not through the story and we're it, not at the end. It might come into play later on. It's hard to say. I just if they were to customize this book specifically to me, they being the powers that be, writers, editors, and such and such, that's what I would have liked to have seen. Fair enough. But they're not tailoring this book to me. <laughs> My pin is about Nick getting angry that it's up to them to save the world this chapter, and that jumped out at me because I was like. That's kind of your own fault. Yeah, this is an extra long pin because Scott and I discussed this very briefly before we started recording and then had to stop because I wanted to finish talking about it when the microphones were on. Yeah, nobody actually put the weight of the world on their shoulders except them. 
and him getting angry at like the world for relying on them to save it is really misplaced anger because again the world didn't do that to them the world is largely oblivious to what's going on yeah the person who shouldered that burden on the two of them is johnny who decided that it was up to them to save the world and no one else yeah johnny offered it up nick took it they took this on themselves johnny's weird trust issues and her and to be fair by extension nick's weird trust issues uh have prevented them from seeking help uh, and Johnny has minions. <laughs> like, not just Rutger either. Like, she has employees. She has scientists and lab assistants and people around the world who could have made this so much easier. She didn't even need to tell them the whole story. She just set them on the task of retrieve this information for me, retrieve this information for me, find me this artifact. She could have cut days off of their adventure and been relying on her network to get her stuff much faster. But she needed to do it herself. She needed to keep it secret. She couldn't trust anybody else with this. And then you further add in the Serati Society, who has offered help. And even if some of them aren't trustworthy, like Tariq is a little suspicious, but other people have shown up as well independently and shown that there are factions in this group, and some of them must be on the up and up, but she's refusing their help left and right. And refusing to give them anything in return. So, like, this circles back around to something we've discussed before, which is Johnny is her own worst enemy. Yes. And she has, deliberately or not, made this much harder on them. Nick is upset about it now, but it really is their fault. And Nick, ironically, is the one person who probably could have talked Johnny down off of, we should go, we are the chosen ones, we're the plucky teenage protagonists in a young adult series, and we can save the world all by ourselves. Nick is the one with the with the world wisdom. He's the one person who probably could have told her, this is a terrible idea. But as usual, he just trusts her to be the smart one. Yeah. And goes along with it. Yeah. But she also has him convinced. She does. It's this... <sighs> and only now, in the 11th hour and 45th minute has he realized maybe this was a terrible idea well it, it boils down to johnny is there to save the world and nick is there to save johnny yeah right that's that's kind of what it and, boils down to and there is the further question if nick had refused her would she have just gone off and done it on her own probably almost would she have failed probably absolutely she would have she's only gotten this far because of nick uh, despite Nick often feeling like she's this far in spite of him, really she is this far because of him. Yeah. I don't understand the trope that the chosen one, quote unquote, always has to be some incredibly young adult. A callow youth? Yes. Why? It's not always the case. It's usually the case. It's it's usually the case. It in is young... frequently the okay. case. Here here's I'm gonna I'm gonna take a step back and I'm gonna get all meta with you. Please do. Young adult fiction is aimed at young adults, so the protagonists are going to be teenagers. Yes. Because people, kids who are younger than teenagers, look up to teenagers, and teenagers are also very self centered. That is a self centered time of your life, and so of course they're going to think they're the special, and they need to go and save the world. Ergo, they like to see that reflected in the heroes that they identify with in young adult fiction, which is why young adult fiction is often very chosen one-y and very save-the-world-y, and why all of the factions of the world roughly correspond with high school. That's just the, that's, it's it's hacky and it's tropey, and it's also, it sells, because that that's how teenagers are. Yeah, I, yes, 
just now that I'm a jaded old adult, I look at it and go, that's a terrible choice for a chosen one. Pick someone who knows what they're doing. Now, I will grant that there are stories that try to deconstruct that and try to subvert that. Say what you will about J.K. Rowling. And there are many, many Many, things to say about her. So many things to say. Um, But... She did attempt to deconstruct that a bit in the later Harry Potter novels. It was, Harry was the chosen one explicitly because the bad guy chose him. He probably was not the right person for that, but he pulled through in the end, in many cases in spite of his shortcomings, because he had the support of competent people around him. Yeah. Though even the most competent of them made terrible mistakes along the way in, order, in, an, in a misguided effort to protect him. Yes. And that's in many ways a deconstruction of that story. And that's, that's good. That's not bad. That's not bad writing. No, no, I'm not saying it's bad. I just, it's a trope I see a lot. It's tropey and it's hacky, but it sells. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. Okay. Uh, and I, I do get the sense that this book is very much kind of deconstructing that. The chosen ones in this case d- chose themselves, are probably not the right people to do it, have gone out of their way to avoid getting help that could make their job easier or successful. And I'm worried very seriously are going to fail. (laughs) It's possible. So. Honestly, sometimes I wonder if these two aren't just saving the world out of spite. I mean, Johnny absolutely is partly saving the world out of spite. I'm sure spite factors into it for her. I think Nick is, I think Nick is mostly doing it out of a sense of obligation. Definitely. He, he is the loyal priestess. And yes. Johnny is the king, is the great king, is yeah, okay. is basically the parallel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I see it. Next up is chapter 25. Uh, you'll want to read up on that in time for next week. And uh, in the meantime, um, you know, there are a lot of great podcasts. We do appreciate you spending some of your time listening to ours uh, because... Lord knows there are there are definitely better, more professional podcasts out there. But we, we appreciate your ears. Um, there are a lot of great podcasts as well that uh, don't generally get the kind of notice that they probably should. They're, they're very niche or they are kind of uh, focused on, on different communities, but they deserve a shout out and they, they definitely deserve being checked out on their own merits. And uh, fortunately, the Alberta Podcast Network is partnered up with the Edmonton Community Foundation to bring a little bit of attention to some of them. With Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to Is This For Real? Is This For Real is a podcast about various facets of black life in Edmonton. In the first season of the show, Breaking the Blue Wall, host Omar Salafu explores anti-black racism and policing and tells stories about policing in schools, accountability in Alberta's policing system, and the impacts of police violence on black Edmontonians. You can listen to the podcast and read more about each episode at isthisforreal.ca. You can also support the work of these podcasters and future seasons on Patreon. Great podcasts, worth checking out. Yeah. You can uh, check out all of our member podcasts as well at albertapodcastnetwork.com. There you will uh, be able to get a little sample, what everybody has to offer. And uh, if you find one you like, you can probably download it on your podcatcher of choice. Almost guaranteed. While you're there, uh, give us a little rating and review. That helps us out. We appreciate it greatly. We sure do. You 
can also reach out to us on social media. All right, here's the standard list. You've heard me say it before. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Goodreads. We are at The Read Along on most of those. You can also reach out to us via email. You can find us at thereadalong at gmail.com. And with that said, as always, we love you very much. We'll see you next time. Death from above! Thank you for joining us on The Read Along with your hosts, Anita and Scott Bourgeois, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. All Read Along music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Cover art is by Aaron Beaver. Be sure to join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Read Along, and check out our group on Goodreads.com. 